And we're back. I'm Gurvir Brahm here with Chamakar Sandu, and we are screen off script. This week, we're getting into Last Night in Soho and reflecting on all the major movie and TV news of the week. Folks, it's showtime. London is everything I have dreamed of. I know how much you want this, but it's not what you imagined. I keep seeing these visions of the past. This is just a taste of things to come. You shouldn't have come here. Maybe it's too late for you. Save yourself! Alright, in our first segment, we're going to be talking about spoilers for Last Night in Soho, but if you want to skip around, we got timestamps in the description, and don't forget to subscribe. Then I just want to dive in, because I'm sure you know this, but this was the movie I was looking forward to most for the entire year. Yeah. Last Night in Soho, obviously because it was directed by Edgar Wright, walking in, I was so hyped for this movie. How about you? Yeah, like, I'm a fan of Edgar Wright, maybe not to the level of you in terms of your reverence for the director. I think he's made some fantastic movies, but at the same time, I saw the trailer and I thought, this is very interesting, I'm very intrigued, it's got Anya Taylor-Joy in it, I'm a big fan of hers ever since The Queen's Gambit, and I'm like, let's go. I'm like, I'm, I was still, you know, definitely excited, and, and honestly, amongst the plethora of, like, big budget sci-fi comic book movies that, you know, are, have already come out and are coming out, this is like one of those movies where you're like, you know what, this could be potentially a flick that could be, you know, up for awards. We're just a few months away from award season. So going in, I was excited. And also the fact that I knew that this was set in London, I was like, okay, let's see if it's going to be something that's going to make me reminisce, if it's going to be something that's going to maybe annoy me a little bit, if they haven't got it right. <laughs> but yeah, I was definitely, you know, excited about watching the movie because more than anything else it's definitely any you know something different to anything else that was in the schedule it was one thing that it had Annie taylor joy in it because for me once i found out about this movie it was it coincided with that time when queen's gambit just came out right so i was like first I, it went from who is this person to oh my gosh this person's incredible i can't wait to see what they're in yeah then i find out hey they're gonna be in this movie with edgar wright holy shit this is like a match made in heaven yeah. right like i was very very excited to see where they would be able to take this especially like i love the idea of like a young actress in Hollywood like we, we when you kind of find her on like a TV show and then you're like oh I want to see everything she's gonna be doing right that's a fun new experience too because it's basically like getting like just like a new artist that you get to follow their career of and she's so young and so creative and man I'm uh, like I'm already a big fan of hers but yeah. now after first watching Queen's Gambit and now watching this I'm a massive fan I agree uh, and I, that, that was like one of my biggest takeaways from the movie and I know we're gonna get into performances later but moving forward based purely off of Queen's Gambit and Last Night in Soho, anything Anya Taylor-Joy does, I'm in. Yeah, let's get into the actual movie. First off, this is my kind of movie. Right. The reason why I love it right off the bat is this just matches all the kind of stuff I like. It's not that sci-fi stuff. You know, I like that too. Yeah. It's not the award season stuff. I didn't really get that whole vibe from it. But for me, it's like that middle, like that cult classic niche. Like, you know a lot of people are going to be really, really into this movie for a long time. Like, this is going to be one of those things that people are going to be watching over and over and over, kind of dissecting and just being a big fan of because, again, it's not a, a big studio picture like where there's going to be a lot of CGI and all this kind of stuff. It's a ghost story. It's nostalgic. It's like a slice of life for London. It's a, a psychological thriller. It's kind of horror. It's kind of 60s. It's like all these things all mixed up in one. And for some reason, it just works. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea that we get to go back in time and 
experience London, specifically Soho in the 60s. Obviously, I grew up in London. I know it at the back of my hand, but the 60s was a completely different era and a different time. Yeah. That being said, going back and forth from modern day London to 60s London, there was just so much that I'm like, hey, I've walked down that street. I know that building really, really well. Yeah, yeah. Like it was literally set in a place in a part of London that I spent a, the, the vast majority of my London life, whether I worked there, had lunch there, uh, fallen out of bars and clubs, drunk off my face. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I know that part of London really, really well. Yeah. Um, so one of the biggest takeaways for me is how much it made me reminisce because I haven't been back to London now in a good few years. And I was not expecting this to kind of hit me as hard as it did where I'm like, man, I, I kind of want to go back. I kind of, it's kind of made, if this movie really, really made me personally uh, miss London, which is not one of the experiences I was expecting to get out of it. Honestly, I'm not a big London person, but like obviously we travel a lot, right? Yeah. Like we've been to Japan, Dominican, all these kinds of places. And we're, we're traveling a couple times a year, but for some reason now I really want to go to London. Like right. I'm very excited to see it because I feel like I got like a taste of the culture that you don't really see too much in movies where you know you see like the hustle and bustle of London yeah but this is like that other side this is almost like the fun uh, underbelly party side of London like it's a very different kind of thing like it's, again it's not just a story about that it's a story about like people trying to achieve their dreams it's a story like about like this really beautiful girl who like really wants to be a star and we basically watch the world kind of take her and bring her down to like and like humble her into like the point where she has to go through like some crazy stuff, like absolutely wild stuff. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's, it's part of it, it's like being humbled and on the flip side, talk about Sandy, you know, talk about being taken advantage of the system in London. That's what I mean, it's both of them, right? Like that's the story for both of them. It's the story is they're both walking in with these high dreams yeah. and they're both getting crushed. Yeah. So much confidence, like both of them are walking in like with this gleeful confidence, such youthful exuberance and then boom. Yeah. The real world just comes and hits them, but obviously not in the same way, completely different ways. But both of them get just knocked on their asses. Yes, yeah, it feels like Eloise is kind of, kind of getting bullied by fellow students, and at the same time, London's a big place, and she's kind of going through this, you know, traumatic experience. And on the flip side, it's like Sandy, you know, is essentially being taken advantage of in a, in a kind of different way. Completely, it's different like way, yeah. it's like men taking advantage of a situation where. She's trying to come to London and become a star, but, you know, ends up being essentially prostituted yeah. uh, to, to older men and how that has has an impact on her life. And forward. the crazy thing is, like, you get to watch how she basically gets tricked into that lifestyle. Right. Because she's promised, like, fame. Yeah. And it's, like, this really romantic version at the start of it. That's yeah. kind of the thing. Like, this movie, uh, obviously, it's a, it has its plot, but it takes you on a journey in terms of just understanding how somebody gets to that place. Yeah. Because, she, again, she walks in with so much confidence, so much talent, and then you see how this person kind of first eggs on the idea that like, you know what, you're very talented, and but don't worry, I'm gonna get you where you wanna go, but it's gonna be through this, you're gonna have to work hard, and at first you think like, yeah, of course, you gotta put your hours in, you gotta pay your dues, but that's not where the story goes. It takes you into like a really weird left turn, which is obviously like the other side of it. Like so many other movies romanticize like different eras in time. This movie does the complete opposite of that. Yeah. It shows that sinisterness. Yeah. That is like so much fun to watch. Yeah, absolutely. Light shining on you. It's the closest most people ever get to being on stage. You know, to their dreams. Not me. Not you. I could see you want it. More than anything. Well. 
this is just a taste of things to come, Sandy. But yeah, let's get into individual performances because I think that's going to be the most fun. First, let's talk about Eloise, aka Ellie. Just a student, loves uh, music, loves fashion, wants to basically make it as a fashion designer in London. Comes from a small town. Again, like you said, she's overwhelmed by just a big city and tries to escape in like her own little apartment. Right. But that's where everything kind of falls apart for her. Yeah. And uh, it's just, I think it's a really interesting performance by uh, Thomas and Mackenzie, who I've never seen before. Yeah. Right. And it's just this really innocent girl and she kind of nailed it. I think that was like a perfect version of this character. Yeah. I felt like her performance got stronger and stronger as the movie went on. And I've got to give shout out to Edgar Wright. He just has a knack of finding young talent that has little or no experience or definitely not something uh, that any mass audience would be aware of. And I feel like now she's got that platform where she can just kind of go on and, and hopefully go on to bigger and better things and, and, you know, start to carve out a pretty interesting career for herself because, I mean, let's face it, this movie is centered around her, her and her character. Um, it's the anchor of the entire movie. Yeah, yes. she's the base. Yeah, absolutely. Everything revolves around her and her experience and, you know, it's not kind of explained in, in detail. You're kind of left to your own imagination. But basically, she's able to travel into the past, you know, and that's where she has this kind of um, experience with Sandy and that whole world. But it's it's all about her. This whole movie revolves around Ellie, and I felt like uh, Thomas and Mackenzie did a fantastic job. You're, you're completely right that Edgar Wright has, like, this knack for getting characters like that. Yeah. He does this thing where he'll, he'll get somebody who's, like, an everyday person that everybody can kind of relate to, and then build a movie with wild characters around it. Yeah. Right? It's the same thing like he did with Scott Pilgrim. He took Michael Cera, who's like this really funny guy, but a very like everyday kind of guy, literally from the same town where I'm from. Right? And and uh, I, I can just see that he's like this nerdy dude. I can relate to him, but all this craziness is kind of happening to him. Yeah. Same thing in Baby Driver with uh, Ansel Eichhardt. Same exact with uh, Simon Pegg in Hot Fuzz. Right? Like it's just, he finds these people as their base, as their like, super relatable people and just builds around them yeah this is the cool thing it's like because you haven't really seen much of their previous work this being the first impression you have of them as an actor is going to be so impressionable that now everything's benchmarked against this yeah. and that's a cool thing about him finding this the, the gems of this kind of talent and casting them in his movies is because he obviously has a knack of, ta- of finding good actors yes right but that's a good director and a good filmmaker and good casting system behind the scenes, right? To find the actors that audiences are going to be wowed by but have nothing to compare them to in the past. And think about this. He has, like, Thomas and Mackenzie who's, like, obviously killing it in this very subdued role. Yeah. But then opposite her is Anya Taylor-Joy who, again, we've said it a million times on this podcast already, but, like, she is just, like, this force that kind of just walks on screen and just takes over. Yeah. And it feels like, even through the advertising, you're like, this is her movie. Right. The funny thing is, like, obviously, at this point, this time last year, before they shot it, they must have known that this isn't a big actress. Right. But they depended on her to be able to deliver in such a way. And I think, regardless if she had Queen's Gambit, I think something like this would have put her on the map as well. Yeah. Because she's such a star in this movie, and she really comes across that way. And that's not an easy thing to do, to find somebody who's unknown as well to just basically just nail it and take over. Yeah, the biggest takeaway for me right now with regards to Anya Taylor Choi, number one, she's a phenomenal actress, number one. Number two, 
her screen presence is insane. Yeah. She owns the screen. Like she she can come on and and if the other actors or actresses around her, it doesn't matter. Your eyes are fixated on her. What is she doing? What is what is her character doing? And it maybe it's a stroke of luck. Maybe they knew um, you know, what Queen's Gambit was gonna be, maybe they didn't, but what a stroke of genius to cast her. And yes, it's not the lead role, but it's a juicy enough, it's a meaty enough role, and she's got enough screen time. I think it's the most interesting character in the entire movie. Oh, yeah, right? by like, far. You can, you can chew on that harder than like any other character in this entire movie. And not only that, but she's like, again, just as Sandy, she's so elegant. She's so, not only talented, like we got to see so many different sides of her talent, because not only can she act, but she can goddamn dance. And yeah. not only that, but she's an incredible singer, apparently. Uh, that hit me out of nowhere. Yeah. And to your point, I almost feel like I wanted more. Yeah. Like, you know, that's that's the great thing. Of, you know, that, that's the biggest takeaway, the biggest compliment you can give to any uh, actor or actress is when they have their final scene in the movie, but there's still like an hour of the movie to go. You're like, oh, well, hang on a second. Yeah. I want to explore that character a lot more. I want more of that actor on screen right now. Um, so for the time that she had, she killed it. She owned it. And man, I'm just so excited about her career moving forward. But once again, this is one of those resume builders where it's completely different to what she gave us in Queen's Gambit. And now I think she's going to start to show some diversity in her performances as well. That scene I really want to get into is just that audition scene where she's auditioning to finally be a singer. She has so much confidence. She's like, listen, I've never sang before, but I want to be your star. Right. And that like confidence makes you go like almost thrown off. We're like, oh, this is going to be like a movie. We're going to see this fun person kind of elevate and take over the scene and just completely just become enamored by the entire city yeah and you see it when she actually auditions it's this surprising and like sultry kind of rendition of downtown yes when you're alone and life is making you lonely you can always go downtown just came out of nowhere for me. I didn't know she could sing, number one. Yeah. And then number two, again, she just belts it out in like a perfectly shot version of that. And it's just incredible. Yeah, this actually was my favorite scene. I know we're going to get to that later, but spoiler alert, this was my favorite scene yeah. of, the, of the entire movie. And it kind of almost, you know, encapsulated what Edgar Wright is all about when it comes to his movie. He always has a phenomenal soundtrack. The choice of songs, the choice of music is always a 10 out of 10. And by the time we get to this audition scene, I'm already kind of listening to and I'm starting to feel the vibes of 60s London and 60s music and the scene and the era and everything. And then when she starts to sing downtown, I'm just like mesmerized. I'm sitting there in the cinema and I'm just watching this and I'm like, wow, like I'm absolutely blown away. And I'm like, maybe we should just get her a record deal and like maybe she should sing and record an album or something on a side note I was listening to a podcast that she was on with Pharrell and you could tell like she just has like that artistic quality about her like her and Pharrell were kind of bouncing off each other like just on a very vibey kind of way and you're right. like oh I feel like they're gonna work together at some point because wow. she feels like she's she's mentioned that she's writing music and all this kind of stuff but it just feels like this might not be the last time we actually see her kind of That's dip amazing. In. Yeah, so this feels like something that we could actually get more of. Right. But back to your point about the soundtrack, this soundtrack is absolutely incredible. Yeah. From when we watched this movie till now, I've been listening to the soundtrack nonstop. Not only does it have like these like perfectly like fun tones of like London music from the sixties, but at the same time, sinister stuff within those like that that music. Yeah. Like there's this one song, I'll intersplice it right now.
Like immediately these strings that just kind of catch you off guard and, and, and initially when you're listening to it, it feels like you're like listening to like a horror movie score. Right. But then it just kind of turns into this other beautiful song again in that era. Yeah. Right. And, and the same thing with uh, when they go to, it's like a modern scene where they're dancing. It's still a song from the 60s yeah. where she's dressed up as a ghost at that party and all the other people are kind of dressed up at a costume party or Halloween party or whatever it is. But all of a sudden you hear this one song and you're like, I know that song. And it's the sample from The weekend's Glass Table Girls. Right. Right. And you're like, I, I've heard this song before, but it's the sample of it. So it feels very modern and nostalgic at the same time, which is exactly the perfect thing that they encapsulated well in this movie. And I think that plays a major part in how there's a pivotal moment in the movie where I wasn't, exp- again, I, I kind of, even though I'd seen the trailer, I kind of like blanked it out. I was still was not aware in terms of plot what we were going to get in terms of the storyline. Yeah. And there's a moment in the movie where you're kind of like thinking, oh, this is going to be a, a, a nice, fun, coming-of-age story. And all of a sudden, it just takes a harsh right turn. Yeah. And the music helps take you to that place where it's like, this is going to be a dark alley we're going down. It's now going to be horror, suspense, thriller. It's like, it, you know, the thing about this movie that I love the most is... It kept me guessing. I'm sitting there in the theater. It has me completely engrossed in what's going on. And at no point did I think this was predictable. At no point could I guess what was going to happen next. And that's the biggest compliment I can give to Edgar Wright. The screenplay is fantastic. And actually, it's a screenplay more than anything else that I think may get some award nominations because I feel like, you know, as an original story, as an original screenplay, it was absolutely out of this park. Not only that, but you're right, there was no lull. Like the great thing I think Edgar Wright does really, 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 really well is he takes things that should be mundane yeah. and he makes them exciting. Like they're like in The Terminator or something like that. He'll just, somebody will just be like making a peanut butter jelly sandwich and you're just like, whoa, that was awesome. Right. How did you do that so cool? Yeah. <laughs> right? And it's just like very little stuff. It's like how many times did I think in this movie where like an, another character, Matt Smith playing Jack, how many times did I think, wow, that guy is making smoking look awesome <laughs> like yeah. I'm not pro cigarettes or anything but right. that guy made that like just little stuff little little character traits of just nor- doing very normal things looked really awesome how fun is it and interesting to kind of just analyze that 60s London there are all these people just smoking and puffing away at cigarettes and then modern day London there's like no one smoking there's yeah. plenty of people drinking but there is absolutely no one smoking and it kind of just shows you how things have changed in like 50, 60 years absolutely yeah and it's that old school London vibe it's, it's magical man yeah, like yeah. a part of me wishes like that you could like almost just dip into that just to like kind of live with it obviously we wouldn't have the same kind of experience but I feel like uh, just being able to observe that would just be a beautiful thing 100% it, it also tell me if you get this vibe like did this movie it didn't feel like a movie that's made right now it kind of mm. felt like a movie in the 90s I, I, I hear what you're saying I, I tell you what modern day London I feel like outside of maybe the bullying I, I don't know if like that's what how bullying happens now especially at university when people are in their late teens and early 20s but obviously it was a plot point and a plot device to kind of get her to move out of the dorms so I totally respect and understand why you're trying to do that but I, I felt like modern day London was pretty nailed on in terms of how people look dress and carry themselves and things of that nature and yeah I mean you know 60s in, in London like Man, I don't, I don't want to go there for five or ten minutes, man, because it's such a magical time. And I don't know if you saw this, but kind of one of the the opening moments when you first go to 60s uh, London, there's a club called Café de Paris. Mm-hmm. I went to Café de Paris 
in the 90s and the 2000s, you know, um, when, when I was in the clubbing stage of my life. Yeah. So the fact that that club is still existing, even till this day, is still there. And it's got all this rich history of being in London. But there was uh, a singer called Scylla Black. Scylla Black was huge in the 60s. She ended up, I was not aware of her whatsoever as a singer when I was a kid growing up. Because as a kid growing up, she hosted a TV show called Blind Date. And so for a whole generation of people growing up in the 90s and the 2000s, it was surprise, surprise, it's Scylla Black and she was hosting this TV show every Saturday night called Blind Date. But she's got this history of being one of the iconic singers of the 60s in London. Uh, so the fact that they could have just dropped that little, almost like a little nugget in there that only maybe a handful of people would really appreciate was fascinating to me. It's as well. really cool because she's featured on the soundtrack multiple times as nice, well. So nice. So that's, that's really, really cool that you were able to add that as a tidbit. But not only that, but it kind of shows that like, music, art, fashion, it's all so cyclical, yeah. right? And it's kind of like what you see also as well in the actual plot of the movie because Eloise, she actually dyes her hair blonde. She wants to look like Sandy. She changes her fashion to be like Sandy. She uses her as like an inspiration for her dress. And it just kind of shows that, number one, again, fashion is just something that always comes back around. And yeah. you still see that today, right? Like so many things of how people dress is a throwback from how people dress from before. 100%. Right now, it feels like the 90s is about to come back. Yeah. It feels like that all the time. But it also shows that the lesson that I, uh, that I kind of take away from this movie as well is... Uh, something I feel like is kind of talked about a few times I've heard recently is the idea of parasocial relationships. Basically, like if somebody sees somebody online and then all of a sudden, for some reason, because they're able to follow their life, they start building this attached attachment to them. And like right. we've seen it, like so many fan bases just feel like they know the person. I know Kendall Jenner. I know Kylie Jenner. I know Blackpink. Like I know all these people. Right. And then you become like this emotionally invested in this person, but it's like this unhealthy relationship that you're having with them. Right. And that's what Eloise has with Sandy because she sees her from a distance and feels like she knows her right but then she sees like the bad side yeah and that's where it kind of falls apart and that's where it's unhealthy to have these kinds of relationships as well yeah and, and it's almost like she, she thinks of uh, Sandy as being this victim but and at the end of the movie we find out not only is Sandy the victim but ultimately the men become victim everyone becomes a victim exactly and it's like you know you don't get that until right at the very end there is no like bright side to it no right like every the reason she became like this is through shitty circumstances yeah. and what she did as a result of this is shitty circumstances yes it doesn't make it any better or anything like that one thing I want to say about um, Edgar Wright is a few years ago, he was attached to and actually had started production on Ant-Man. Yeah. And, you know, I think everybody was excited to see what his version of Ant-Man would be. And it was it was a big shift for him at that stage of his career to like really take on board this massive, you know, high budget MCU movie in, in, you know, for one of the biggest studios, in fact, the biggest studio in the world right now in Disney. And you know things happened. He was replaced by Peyton Reed. I still enjoyed what we got from Ant Man. I still wonder in my mind what you know Edgar Wright's version could have been. But what he decided to do there is he just went back to his roots and he gave us Baby Driver and Last Night in Soho. Which when you look at them, you can just tell it's not the most expensive movies in the world, right? They they probably cost a fraction of what Ant Man would have cost. But he wrote it, he directed it, his fingerprints are all over it, and I feel like. That's that. That's what you want from these directors. Yes, you know it's, it must be tempting when a big project and with all the money in the world and you know an opportunity to make a Marvel movie, especially if a comic book fan, comes you know it fallen onto your lap like on a silver platter because of the work that you've done. But my God, I'm just so happy that he was able to almost rebound from what was obviously a, a shitty situation 
be, who wants to be replaced as a director when you're already on board? And he comes back with two absolute bangers, back to back in Baby Driver and Last Night in Soho. That's an awesome point, because not only did he give me two of my favorite movies that I've seen in recent memory, but it just shows that like, that's also one of the biggest what ifs in Marvel history as well. Right. If you're going to do a what if, do a what if of what Edgar Wright would have made for Ant-Man. Because I think him and Paul Rudd, what we got was cool, but you could tell that like what we're getting now, like, and we're going to talk about this in the next couple of weeks, like with like Eternals and what we just got with Shang-Chi, it's this new approach to like these Marvel movies where they're trying out all these different things. I feel like back then, a couple of years ago, they weren't willing to swing like that. They were too safe. Packs. They were very safe. They wanted to stay in the formula and let's not really move out of that. Right. Right. And and that's what Edgar Wright was probably trying to do. Yeah. And because of that, he got the boot. Yeah. But it's unfortunate. But again, I'm obviously I'm very glad that that happened because I got the movies that I got and 100%. I'm so happy because who knows if I would have had that same attachment to uh, Ant Man. Yeah. Who knows? His track record. Like, I don't know. If, I don't know who else I can compare it to, but I can perhaps only compare it to Quentin Tarantino. Like, if you look at his resume, he writes and directs his movies, man. And they're great movies. There's very few, like, lulls on his resume because his fingerprints are all over it. It's like, it's, it's his idea, it's his plot, his story. He's executing it. He knows exactly how this movie's going to play out in his mind because it's not like someone said, hey, Edgar, we've got this amazing script or this uh, adaptation from this novel. Have a read. We want you to make the movie. No, it's all original work. From him, and I think that's when you see some of the best work from directors. When a master is at work, is when everything from the ground up is completely original. I'm glad you brought up how he like is kind of resembles Quentin Tarantino in that way because he has he's like one of Quentin Tarantino's proteges. Like right. he would write movies in Quentin Tarantino's house. He's has like spent time there and written entire scripts and gets approval. He's that's one of the guys that he's gonna go check and be like, hey, what do you think of this script? So it's great that you're able to, number one, make that connection. But number two, it, that's why we like these guys. Right. They're people who care so much about every minute detail and every piece of minutia. It's just so overanalyzed and it turns out to make it so much better. Yeah. Because no second is wasted in these guys' movies. Yeah. You know what else I was thinking? Because it's a great point considering what you just said where mm-hmm. he could have gone and done a franchise or done an existing property and like remade it or something like that. But instead, he tends to make original content yeah it kind of brings me back to a movie we reviewed a few weeks ago in Candyman mm-hmm. right and in my head I was thinking why is this movie so good but Candyman wasn't right because a lot of our criticism for Candyman was like hey this wasn't that scary right or it didn't like match up to my expectations or whatever it was I think the fact that Candyman was promoted as Candyman like we expected so much from it it, it, it created these expectations that I just didn't meet last night in Soho I knew nothing and there was no baggage that came along with it. And I think it excelled because of that. Well, here's the thing about a remake. A remake of, of Candyman, all right, that's a horror movie. So you're going you're gonna to scare me. Last Night in Soho, hang on a second, what is this about? The, you know, you can look at the poster, you can look at the trailer, you can get some sort of idea. Yeah. But like I said, when I was watching it, the first like hour of the movie, I'm just like mesmerized. I'm like, this is going to be, a, like, a, like I said before, like a coming of age story. Like there's going to be a happy ending here. It's going to be, you know, driving off into the sunset. This is going to be like a feel good movie. I thought the exact same thing. And then all of a sudden it just slaps you in the face by taking a harsh right turn. It's like, yo, we're going to get a completely different direction here. This is literally a tale of two halves, two different movies, but it's so interspliced so well and it's believable. And the journey that you t- takes you on, like I said, the best thing about this movie is the fact that it keeps you on your edge of your toes. It's there's no point where you can just like sit back and be like, ah, oh, I know what's about to happen. It's not predictable whatsoever. And um, and I think this is probably his most 
you know, out there attempt at giving us perhaps not full-on horror, but that kind of suspense. Because exactly. I feel like some of the other kind of, I guess, you know, zombie movies, or they're still kind of like black comedy, comedy, it's a bit tongue-in-cheek. This is full-on out there. Like, he's he, he went for a big time with the whole suspense and the thrill and narrative here. And, and I thought for the most part, he delivered. I think that's another thing that's great because it's not an outright horror movie. Yeah. Had I thought this was going to be an outright horror movie, I probably would have had a certain set of expectations. I didn't. Yeah. So I walked in free mind and free thinking and just letting it kind of letting the experience just kind of happen to me and I think that's really what made it much much better and that's what is the biggest argument for having original titles because had let's go back like say Candyman not been advertised as Candyman I think I would have liked that movie a lot more and a part of me wants to go back and watch it now after watching this and be like I want to give it a fresh pair of eyes without judgment without expectations and just see how it was right but man, like I feel like we can talk about this movie forever and ever. Yep. But I want to get into our categories. What did you think? Who was the best character? Ooh, that is a tough one. But I'm gonna lean on Sandy here. I feel like yes, Anya Taylor Joy doesn't perhaps get as much screen time um, as as Eloise, but the fact that she's on screen for I think the the pivotal amount of time and what she goes through and what she experiences. Uh, hits me big time. I think her performance was completely outstanding, and I thought she, you know, I think overall, if if any performance from this movie is gonna have the most lasting impression, it's what Annie Taylor Joy gave us. Yeah, um, I agree. It was Annie Taylor Joy. Not only was she a scene stealer, she might not be the main character, but she's the main event. Yes, you went to go watch her. You know what I mean? Like everyone was drawn to the theater for her, and I feel like you're left with a greater impression of her specifically. Yeah. Again, Eloise was a very close second, but I think it's tough to steal the scene when you have somebody that's such a large character compared to somebody who's meant to be a smaller character. And they're meant to be like juxtapositions against each other. Yeah. But what about best scene though? Best scene, I mentioned it earlier on. Um, I think it's the scene stealer from the entire movie. It's when Sandy, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, has to audition and sings downtown for that, that two or three minutes of that scene. I'm just completely engrossed and just blown away, blown away by what I'm watching. It just is actually one of the, my probably my, my favorite scenes of any movie this year. Period. I'm not mad at that. Yeah. Uh, for me, it was also music based because uh, I would say two different scenes kind of struck me in that way. Both of them were dancing scenes. One was Anya having that dancing scene with Jack and then eventually running away. Yes. And then the other one was Thomason having that uh, the dancing scene with her boyfriend. John and uh, they basically again they have that dance to that song that samples the weekend or the song that the weekend sampled and uh, it's just they're complete opposite scenes of each other but they're both perfect it's just they're both incredible scenes and uh, the way Edgar Wright has a relationship with music and the way he is able to execute music in his movies is basically as good as anyone has ever done it if you ask me yeah that is a talent in its own right to to pick the right songs that's going to elevate the scene and elevate your movie is a tough thing to do because I feel like so many it's easy to be like oh I'm going to get this great classic song from the 80s or the 60s or the 70s but sometimes those song choices have been played out so many times in other material and other movies and TV shows that it just doesn't hit he always finds a way to get the right stuff done not only that but it feels like when he's writing he's thinking this is the scene that I'm going to play and then he builds the scene with that it feels like a a match made in heaven for how he picks music and how he writes those scenes right course. What can I get you to drink? It's Sandy. And I'd love a Vespa. James, we'd love a Vespa. 
After all, what do you do, Sandy? Well, I sing, of course. As you don't sing. Care for a demonstration? Uh, what about star rating? Five being the greatest movie ever seen, zero being the worst. Where does this one end up? I'm giving this a 4.25. This is one of my favorite, not only my one of my favorite movies I've seen this year, but it's one of my favorite cinematic experiences that I've had this year. You know, for the longest time we weren't able to go to the theater. We've only been able to go now for I think the last few months. So obviously you don't have like the the biggest length of experience in 2021, but. I just remember leaving the theater with you and some of other friends and I was just like so happy about what we had just watched and it was something so different and it was original at a great time. Yeah, if you can, you know, you can perhaps be a little bit nitpicky with regards to how the movie ends and, and some of the, um, the climactic, you know, choices that they made. But for the most part, I had a really, really good time and I have no problem recommending this 4.25 I completely me. agree. If it, I, I agree in that as well. Like the ending isn't as strong as the rest of the movie. I do agree with that, but it doesn't take away the lasting impression that I had walking out of that theater. Exactly, Because yeah. we've had so many crappy movies from the past couple of weeks that yeah. we've like ended up reading poorly. Yeah. But luckily this was like a great experience walking out. I gave it a four and a quarter as well. Okay. My thought was that it's not gonna win an Oscar. I don't like who knows? It might be nominated for like screenplay. I it might, screenplay be, for it sure. might be nominated for cinematography, it might be nominated for a bunch of stuff. But yeah. On the other side, it's not going to be a box office match, but right. it's going to be rewatchable and 100% it's going to be a cult classic. And personally, I can't wait to watch it again. Yeah, I definitely feel like this is going to get a good, strong word of mouth. And I feel like, you know, honestly, Edgar Wright is doing no harm to his resume right now. And who knows, man, maybe a big studio comes back to him and maybe the, the, you know, the experience that he had with Ant-Man has almost fueled him to maybe do that again one day. Because obviously him accepting Ant-Man at that period of, and uh, in that moment in his life, clearly he wants to chew on a big project like that, right? But the fact that he hasn't and he's gone back and said, okay, watch this, watch Armand deliver, you know, I'm one of the best filmmakers in the world, period, right now. And he has shown he can do everything. Horror, drama, comedy, like any genre, original screenplay, like his song choices. He can find talent. He can find the right actors. Like he, we're lucky that this guy is right now 47 years old. He's in his prime. He's one of the best directors in the world. And I legitimately cannot wait for each one of his projects in the, in the coming years. Yeah, the crazy thing is we don't know what he's going to be doing next. So... It's just fun to watch, like kind of like Tarantino. We don't know what he's gonna be doing next, but I'm I always anticipate a Tarantino movie. And now added to that list is I'm always anticipating an Edgar Wright movie, 100%. which for me is the highest praise that I could possibly give somebody. Yeah. But let's get into our next section, our news for this week, because there was a few things that I kind of want to talk about. Some stuff from actually last week as well, just because we didn't really get to talk about everything because there was so much news that came out last week. But uh, first thing, just kind of relating to what we we're just talking about, Edgar Wright actually did mention that he has written a Baby Driver 2 script. Oh, okay. So that's actually done. He's just waiting on the right time to make it. Nice. Number one, obviously, I mean, I can anticipate how, what your answer is going to be, but how excited are you for this? Oh, I'm so excited about that. And this would, I guess, in theory, be his first, you know, legitimate sequel. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you have this kind of, like, trilogy of movies that he, that he did obviously make, um, uh, you know, with uh, The World's End and, and Hot Fuzz and, you know... Uh, Shaun of the Dead. It's that's kind of like a, a really loose trilogy, but that's more of a trilogy of working with kind of his favorite people back in the UK. But this being like a direct sequel to ba to Baby Driver, sign me up for that all day long. Yeah, I'm I'm so curious how they would even tell that story because I feel like that story was told as perfectly as you can get. I know. Part of me is like hesitant almost to see where they go with that, but. Listen, if I'm going to trust somebody with a sequel, I really do trust him to be able to do that in yeah. the same way that, like, 
you know, Kill Bill 2 was a perfect accent to Kill Bill 1. Yeah. I can imagine that this is like that for him with yeah. Baby Driver 2. And so, also, Baby Driver came out in 2017. We're now 21, 21, going to 2022. So I feel like enough time has perhaps passed where, you know, we can go back and see where these characters are five, six, seven years later. And honestly, like I said before, and I think we both can co-sign this, there is nothing that Edgar Wright will do that we are not going to give the time of day to. Like, If he wants to make a sequel and he's got a script ready to go, sign me up, man. Let's do it. Let's see what that's about. Not only that, but obviously the two main actors, Lily Smith and uh, Ansel Egerhart, are much bigger stars now than they were a couple years ago. Right. So doing something with them too, they could now be like almost, it's like the opposite of what I mentioned before. Like They can now be the centerpieces of that movie. Yeah. Uh, another person that really... We can't nail down at all, but also kind of feels like he's fitting into that same space we're talking about. Tarantino, Edgar Wright, but in a completely different way. Taika Waititi. Hey, 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 take it easy, man. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Korg. I'm kind of like the leader in here. Over here, there's a pile of rocks waving at you. Here. Yeah, I'm actually a thing. I'm a being. He's just announced last week that he will direct an upcoming adaptation of The Incal which is like this private investigator basically stumbles on a mystical artifact with great power coveted by many factions across the galaxy. So it's this sci-fi investigator movie, which sounds, first off, amazing. It sounds amazing, yeah, yeah it sounds like, awesome. The, how much better could that be? Like, I feel like what we've seen him do on the big stage, like on a big stage with like Thor, Yeah. seeing how he's able to transition that into like a more original property, I think it's going to be incredible. Yeah. He's like, he's like also one of those filmmakers right now where, number one, you're going to tune in and watch anything he delivers, but he just has shown such great diversity. You know, we were talking about Edgar Wright. We just didn't get to see what his version of Batman could have been, but clearly at some point they were confident enough in his abilities to take on a massive project like that. With Taika Waititi, he's got the proven track record now. He can literally do anything. He can do a small indie project. He can write his own screenplay and, and do his own little project. And at the same time, he can make sequels. He can make something in the MCU. He can make big sci-fi blockbuster movies. He has shown he can literally do it all. Yeah, one of the top five MCU movies, if you ask me, is yeah, Thor Ragnarok. Sure. Right? Like, I, I think that's a pretty untouchable movie. Obviously, he's doing the sequel for that, which gets me massively excited. Yes. But it just shows that, like, this guy is so versatile. Put him on, like, it's like it's like a basketball player. Like, put him in the NBA or put him in the street ball. Like, it doesn't matter where you place him. He's going to fucking wreck people. Yeah. Because he's incredible. Yeah. Right? And, uh, again, he just has so many projects that he's kind of working on where I'm kind of hesitant to, like, get excited about properties, if I'm being honest. Because now we got the NCAL. He has Our Flag Means Death. Obviously, as Thor, Love and Thunder, we can confirm that that's coming out, so that's no problem. Yeah. He has this Star Wars movie that's supposed to come out, and on a side note, what's happening with that Kevin Feige Star Wars movie, but we still haven't heard about that. Right. Um, Akira, which is supposed to come out, that was supposed to be with Leonardo DiCaprio. My God. Uh, the, the Time Bandits, Flash Gordon from before that we talked about a couple of, like months ago. How many projects is this guy attached to right now? And they're all amazing sounding. Yes. I just want one of them. Just give me one. <laughs> Man, I mean, it sounds like he's going to be busy for the next five, six years at this rate. I mean, Thor, Love and Thunder, I think, will be coming out at some point next year. And, I mean, with the slate of movies that you just hit me with, like, it looks like he'll have at least one major release every single year for the next, like, half decade. It's kind of crazy because it's like, how can he deliver all this? How? How, how do you deliver every single property that he just said? If he just does that, that's a legendary career. It's done already. Like, he's good. He's cemented. If he just delivers that, he doesn't even have to sign on new projects for the next decade. Yeah. And he's good. 
Okay, so a question. Outside of Thor, Love and Thunder, from everything that you just rattled off there, what would be like your number one, give me that immediately ASAP first? I mean, obviously I'm a massive Star Wars fan. So for me, a part of me is just like, I want to see what he does in that space. Right. So whatever outlandish thing that he's thinking about, yeah. I I need to see it. Right. If, if there's any anticipated project for Star Wars, I'm super excited about Kenobi. I'm super excited about Mandalorian season three. Yeah. I, all this other stuff that they're going to be coming out with is tremendous. Yeah. But that's the one that kind of sits out for me because it feels like an X factor. I the same you. way like Mandalorian kind of felt like it turned like Star Wars on its head yeah. and brought it back to the prominence. That's what that feels like to me. Like it's just like this thing that like if we want to go to the next level, that's where we got to go. I hear you. For me, I think it's probably going to be Akira with Leonardo DiCaprio. I just like I, I love seeing Leo work with like the best directors of his generation, and he's obviously worked with Nolan, Scorsese. I mean, the list goes on and on, right? I want to see him work with Taika Waititi. I want to see what a Leo and Waititi project looks like, and Akira, one of my favorite animes of all time. So, and I don't think it's been you know you know at this it's been banded about Hollywood for quite some time. Yeah, and it's such. A heavy big project to chew on in terms of how you deliver that on the big screen live action it's not only one of the most influential animes of all time but it's one of the most influential movies of all time yeah right like there's not like if there's any movie that has so much reverence that somebody might not t- like shouldn't touch that I think Akira might be up there with that like yeah. as much as I love Taika Waititi and I love Leo of all that list that's the only one where I'm like Yes, I want to see what you would do with that. But on the other side, like, how the hell are you going to do anything with that? Well, this is precisely why I'd want to see them tackle it. Because I yeah. feel like anybody else, any other combination, stay the hell away from it. But yeah. the fact that it's Leo and Taika, I'm like, listen, if I'm going to trust anyone with Akira, it's most likely going to be these two. Because you know Leo, when it comes to performance, he goes all in and then some. He's not going to give you a bad performance. Yeah. And Taika right now, he's like arguably the hottest filmmaker in the world. So why not? Obviously. Uh, and, and the crazy thing is like, there's just nobody else that I would trust with that property That's in the first it, right? place. Yeah. So, fuck it. Let's go. Yeah. Let's see what he does. Let's, yeah. let's see what he does. What the hell is that all about, this Brett? This ballet class. Sunglasses and What a load of crap. So, Brett, you're coming back to continue a legacy? Uh-huh. Stone Cold's going to make your comeback a living hell. You, know, you can start begging for some mercy you right will. now. Alright guys, we said before that we'd be talking about all the big four pay-per-views of the WWE. We're going to be talking about Royal Rumble, we're going to be talking about SummerSlam, we're going to be talking about WrestleMania, but this week we're going to be talking about Survivor Series. One of the biggest pay-per-views of the entire year for the WWE. It is a situation where it's team versus team, a long-storied history dating back to, what, 1987. Massive, like, some of the greatest moments in this promotion's history have happened in this particular pay-per-view. Jumbo. Sell me this year's pay-per-view. So I think it's a little bit challenging to sell it because the the the, so the traditional Survivor Series matchups that we're getting, I feel like they they have steak but not a lot of sizzle to it, if that makes sense. And it's because what WWE has been doing with Survivor Series for quite a few years now is doing this Team Raw versus Team SmackDown traditional Survivor Series matchup, but. There's never really like any impact of that. Like if, if Team Raw wins, what does that mean? Or if Team SmackDown wins, what does that mean, right? For me, when I'm looking at this card, I, I actually feel like the the champion versus champion matchups on this card actually have a lot more significance only because of who's involved. And obviously we've got Becky Lynch versus Charlotte Flair 
lots of things going on behind the scenes there in yeah. terms of how Charlotte Flair has been handling herself and how the rest of the locker room kind of, I guess, have been uh, impacted or affected by her actions. And then the main event, Roman Reigns, who is arguably the, the best WWE wrestler over the last 18 months, taking on brand new uh, WWE champion Biggie. Again, champion versus champion situation. It's kind of like a dream match in many ways. They both came up together back in the days to work out together and train together. So it's cool to see all them come, kind of come full circle. And I don't know what that kind of match looks like as well and how they're going to build to that in the final few day, you know, hours and days and stuff like that. Both of these matches are... So interesting because not only do Charlotte and Becky Lynch have like such a story history, yeah, but they always deliver in yeah, big matches. It's do. just weird because this this time, like from like we know in real life that they used to be really really close, and we know from following all the backstage politics and dirt sheets and all this kind of stuff, and also Charlotte having an interview with Renee recently, Renee Paquette, where she actually mentioned that they have distanced yeah. long before they had this incident that happened a few weeks ago, and on on SmackDown we had a situation where. It was supposed to be some sort of uh, belt exchange, and it was done in a very disrespectful way from the perspective of Becky Lynch and a lot of people in the company. But Charlotte has come out looking like a real-life heel, yeah. a real-life villain. And it's interesting because it's always fun when wrestling kind of gets to show what's happening in the back in front of the camera. And now we actually get to see kind of a payoff. And I wish they would almost play that up a little bit because now it's kind of fun to see like these guys kind of playing off each other. And I think... These guys can really deliver an incredible match. But the fun thing is, like, it doesn't really... Uh, you're right, the stakes don't matter, but it's one of those things where I know the match is going to be good, so I'm not mad. Yeah, I mean, talking about, you know, Becky and Charlotte, it's like, is it life imitating art? Mm -hmm. Are they working themselves into a shoot? Yeah. There's a bit of blurred lines there. What if this is the best uh, work we've ever seen, and we have no idea that they're just buddies, and they're just like, you know what, let's just mess with all these internet morons. Yeah, like, I actually love the fact that there's a little bit of a reality kind of seeping into this rivalry, yep. because it kind of keeps you on your toes. You kind of don't know where they're going to be going with some of their promos, how they're going to perform, how they're going to work together, and things like that. But listen, man. Talking about like you know the Survivor Series traditional matchups not having any stakes, but they are gonna obviously deliver. You know that you know give them half an hour and they're gonna deliver some fun stuff there. Listen, there's no way. Like I I've seen so many of these five on five matches and there I I can't remember one that didn't deliver. Right. They're all incredible because the the layout of the match is it's so that you can have excitement from the opening bell until the closing bell, there can be something exciting happening the entire way. And with a group of people as capable of these guys, number one, it feels like a lot of these are like SmackDown heavy guys if you really like look at it, like from quote unquote before the draft. Like obviously this brand supremacy doesn't really matter, but like most of these guys are from SmackDown. Yeah. Right? Like before the draft, Seth Rollins on SmackDown, Finn Balor was on SmackDown, wasn't Kevin Owens on SmackDown? Everybody with Bobby Lashley. And it just feels like they're they're showing that, they're, number one, as far as brand supremacy goes, it shows that a two-hour presentation of a show like SmackDown is capable of creating more stars and more relevant performers than a three-hour presentation with Raw, which is obviously such a daunting and obviously something that it's really hard to live up to. Yeah. I actually think when I'm looking at the, the, the women's Survivor Series matchup, that's also very interesting. And I kind of feel like, Team Raw's got a stronger team there. I mean, looking at Team SmackDown, it's really only Sasha Banks that is like, you know, the, the big star. And I look at Team Raw and I feel like they've got bigger stars. They've got, got you know, the women that are perhaps better overall wrestlers and can on paper, it kind of looks like they would win. Uh, but we'll see how that plays out. The one other thing that I'm very curious about, is, and it's kind of going back to the, the two 
um, singles matches on the card. Becky Lynch versus Charlotte Flair, Big E versus Roman Reigns. Champions for their respective brands, Raw and SmackDown. So no titles are going to take, you know, you know, be exchanged here. But who goes over? Because that's going to be the perception moving forward. Whoever wins these matches, the WWE is essentially telling us that's who the biggest female and male star is moving forward. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because obviously they're putting like all their chips on Roman Reigns. Right. In every way possible. It feels like for the next two, three years, like everything is centered around this guy. Right. And I think it actually makes the booking more difficult. Like we saw like a really great version of that initially. Like with the pandemic era, with everything he was doing with his cousins, with everything that happened with uh, Daniel Bryan, with yeah. Edge and all that kind of stuff. He like benefited from like basically being so fresh and able to deliver at such a high level. It feels like in the second year where he's still like kind of on this run and he's still incredible, but it was way, it's way more daunting. Yeah. I feel like you almost need to create more of a chink in his armor yeah. at this point, right? Like I, I feel like if it's me, I think I would put number one Biggie over purely because you created this guy who can actually be a big star. I've seen him on The Breakfast Club. I've seen him on so many mainstream outlets yeah. where it feels like, oh, this is a fresh new perspective and I could actually see new fans tuning in just to see this guy. I don't personally see too many new fans tuning in for Roman Reigns. Yeah, I hear Why you. would what, what what like difference does he bring that like somebody like The Rock doesn't already hasn't already brought or John yeah. Cena hasn't already brought? Biggie, that's a fresh take. This is like a cooler guy, and I feel like if you want to like, I want to see people who actually seem cool in real life. Yeah. On my television, and I think Biggie is a genuinely cool seeming guy, and I want to watch that guy succeed. I hope they can book this match in a way where, you know, Roman doesn't take a hit because obviously he is still the cash cow. He is still leading the company from the front. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't want to see Biggie's rep um, get damaged here. I want to see him I, still I, look strong. And yeah. like, I want to almost this to be like a tease. Like, I want to be able to believe that maybe six months down the road, you could potentially have Biggie versus Roman Reigns in a, in a WrestleMania main event. And oh, Biggie could go over here. Yeah, I think it was what, a year ago or two years ago where they had uh, Roman Reigns versus Drew McIntyre. And listen, as far as like performance go, they're both tremendously talented. But Drew McIntyre losing to Roman Reigns in the way he did while he was champion, while he's supposed to be one of the big guys. I heard him like crazy, if you hurt. ask me. Yeah. It hurts your perception it when does. you're beat by this guy. And Big E being fresh on this run, if he loses to Roman, it's not going to do him any favors. It isn't. If um, anything, like I'm sure if they're actually looking to protect Big E, I'm 100% sure that they're going to do like some sort of uh, interesting finish. Where like who knows somebody might interfere, set up like whatever's next for bit or for either Big E or Roman Reigns. We'll see, but it feels like they need to protect someone like that. Yeah, from a personal perspective, I'm excited about being there. I'm actually going to be in attendance at yeah. the Barclays Center. I'm going to be in New York. I've attended so many WrestleManias. I have attended a bunch of Raws and Smackdowns. I've, I've been to a Royal Rumble. I've never been to a SummerSlam or a Survivor Series. So like, it's 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 me cool to kind of check. Survivor Series off the list and maybe next year I'll tick off SummerSlam off the list but what I do want to actually ask and maybe this is the, the, the best way of ending this segment is what's your favourite Survivor Series memory or what's your favourite Survivor Series card or Survivor Series match or when you think about Survivor Series what comes to mind for you? You know what? It's funny because I, I was in attendance for 2016's uh, Survivor Series, the one where I believe this is the one where Goldberg squashed Brock Lesnar. Right. But before that we had this incredible 5 on 5 match 
with, uh, like, I think it was Team Raw versus SmackDown, but it's, just, it's one of those incredible spots where Shane McMahon jumps and Roman Reigns kind of catches him. I remember seeing that. Like, th- that was an incredible show in general. From start to finish, incredible show. Right. Growing up, I remember just loving Survivor Series because it was one of those situations where you, like, it set up WrestleMania uh, feuds. It set up who's going to be a new star and who's going to be a big deal going forward. And I hope that's what WWE does going forward because these kinds of big events, they really do matter in people's perception. Because, you know, you might just dip in and watch these only these big four every, every, every couple of years. So if you build somebody up here, they might be excited to see how they do in the Royal Rumble. Right. Then they're excited to see how they do in, the, in WrestleMania. Yeah. So personally, uh, I used to love, remember like Team Austin versus Team Bischoff. And basically every perform like Shawn Michaels had an incredible performance for that. I'll give him credit for that. Yeah. But Ro- Randy Orton became a star in that match, and not only that, but every single year after that, I feel like he just became like this massive star. And again, this goes without saying, we had incredible matches on that. Like w- with even before that, with Bret Hart and Stone Cold, one of the most underrated matches of all time. As, as much praise as their WrestleMania match goes. This match was the reason that they even got to go back on go and have that match at WrestleMania yep. because it showed that they can go out and deliver. Yeah. And as far as like you know performance go, like Bret Hart is among obviously one of my my favorite wrestler, but he has incredible matches at Survivor Series. Yeah. He and, does. and there's just like there's a few guys who absolutely kill that. Even that one night uh, incredible uh, tournament where where the fi- the finale was uh, Mankind versus Rock. I love seeing one night tournaments that holds like a special place in my heart. I can't single out one memory, but there's Survivor Series is a really special event in my opinion. Yeah, again, everything that you just mentioned, I completely echo Survivor Series '96, Brett versus Austin, all time classic match, and yeah, I mean, you know, using Survivor Series '97, the screw job, at the end of the one night tournament at Survivor Series '98 mm-hmm. to crown The Rock as the corporate champion, mm-hmm. survive as a, as a beginning to end Survivor Series. Survivor Series 1998 is my favorite Survivor Series because I love the one night tournament. Uh, you know, looking back, it's like incredible that they used the screw job to, uh, as the finale, as the finish uh, to that final. And then the twist that you've got The Rock, who was such a big red hot baby face at the time, turning heel. And it's like, yo, and he's about to become the corporate champion and yep. all this stuff. And it kind of just lines up the feud with Stone Cold Steve Austin so perfectly heading into next year's WrestleMania. And also just like the Deadly Game song. It's like one of those iconic theme songs to a pay-per-view that will always live with me forever. But yeah, man, Survivor Series is just like still, you know, WWE will always have a handful of pay-per-views that are always going to be must-watch for whatever reason. And it's, and sometimes it's because of the history. It's because of the legacy of the pay-per-view and because they know that, you know, there's a generational audience that will still tune in to your top four pay-per-views. So you know you're going to have to deliver big time. And I think that's probably the biggest hook of why people should be watching WWE Survivor Series this Sunday. Absolutely. I think this is... Uh, it's always a fun show. And even if you're not a big fan of professional wrestling, I feel like these kinds are like safe bets that you'll still enjoy the show. Plus, it's at the Barclays Center, so you know you're going to get a red-hot New York crowd as well. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's get into our last portion of our show. Let's get wrecked, our weekly recommendation segment where we recommend a movie. Just like if you went to Blockbuster and you saw Chad's pick or Randy's pick, Jomoth, what is Sandy's pick? Okay, so obviously we've been showering Anya Taylor-Joy with so much praise on this week's episode, so it's only right that I recommend The Queen's Gambit. It's, in my opinion arguably the best miniseries that Netflix has ever produced. It was a one and done. There's no sequels coming. There's no prequels coming. 
Anya Taylor-Joy plays this fictional chess prodigy that's on her rise to the top of the chess world and she's doing all of this while she's struggling with drug and alcohol dependency. In my opinion, her performance is quite simply outstanding and it, it really legitimately put her on the map. Uh, I feel like it got good word of mouth in 2020 and I feel like if for whatever reason you missed it, you didn't watch it, go out of your way, watch it, it's a page turner, you will binge it most likely in one day, it's that damn good. Yeah, it's absolutely one of my favorite Netflix original properties I've ever seen. But for me, for Bra's pick, I'm going with An American Werewolf in London. It's a throwback movie, I feel like I was feeling kind of nostalgic kind of walking out of this movie, so I wanted to pick something older. It's basically two people go to the UK, they're attacked by a werewolf, and nobody believes them. It's equally funny, it's equally scary, it's got like a weird like tightrope walk thing that it's doing where I'm not sure if it's gonna be everybody's taste because I think it is one of those things where it is an acquired taste but at the same time it's just so well done nobody has really been able to touch something like that like in in that kind of way it's a, it's a tough genre to kind of balance around with horror and comedy there's such polar opposites of each other it, it's gonna be an interesting thing to see if everybody likes it but one thing I do know is it's one of Edgar Wright's favorite movies so I felt like it's a nice tie-in for this entire thing so Go out of your way, check it out, An American Werewolf in London. Came out in 1981. Enjoy. But that's the show. Jump with where can everybody find us? We are at Screen Off Script on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And for those of you that do listen to us on the Apple Podcast platform, do us a favor, rate and review us. Taking 30 seconds out to do that for us really goes a long way in helping the show get found on the Apple Podcast platform. So if you can do that, We'd appreciate it greatly. Awesome. Thank you for checking us out this week, guys. Take care.